Well, I, I, um, I have it on good authority that there is a television show that all the teenagers are uh, watching right now. I have my finger on the pulse of popular youth culture, having two teenagers in my home. Um, so this is a show that, that, uh, that youth love, uh, that, that every, this, this show has everything that youth love in TV. It's, it's got humor and suspense and drama, it's edgy, and I know the sh- students probably already know what show I'm talking about here, and maybe you old people don't understand, but the show is Antiques Roadshow. Um, no, not really. Uh, that's actually the show I'm talking about, but I realize that if you're under 30, and most of the teenagers probably have never heard of Antiques Roadshow, the show on PBS, they may not have heard of PBS, uh, um, but it's, a, it's by today's standards of television, it's a pretty kind of slow, uh, tame show, but it can be, it can be quite entertaining, I, again, if you're depending on your version of entertaining, um, but it's a, it's, you have a bunch of people lined up in a convention center and they hold on their arms their family heirlooms and these knickknacks that they've, you know, dug out of their attic or maybe picked up at a yard sale. And, and, and they're there in line holding these things just hoping against hope that possibly this object that they brought is perhaps worth a lot of money. And and there and there are the experts uh, who are appraisers and you know run these auction houses and and they're experts in antiques and artwork and memorabilia and furniture and just all kinds of junk and uh, and they're there to examine all these trinkets and kind of tell the story and say if there's any value in them. So most of the time, if you've watched the show, people's hopes just get dashed. And so that great grandmother's painting that hung over the mantle that uh, all the Kids were thought, oh, this is going to be worth a lot of money, and they fought over after she died. And they, 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 they think this is this is going to they, they're going to be able to sell this and pay off their mortgage. Well, it turns out she bought it out of a Sears Roebuck catalog, and it's worth like you know tens of thousands, just like it, and it's worth fifteen dollars or something like that. So that happens often. But then there are those times when people get a, a really unexpected surprise, and. So there's some strange, some hand-painted porcelain bedpan or something like that. It's worth a quarter million dollars or something like that, and it has some great historical value. And, and of course, the people who brought it, they're, they're completely overjoyed because they, they, they don't expect it. They can't believe what they have, and, and it's, it's overwhelming. So they, they may not have actually cared about that bedpan before that day, it was it was something that nobody else in the family wanted after their estranged great uncle died, and so they just stuck it in a box and it was in the corner of their basement. But they drug it out for this thing, and but now that they know what it's worth, it's you know on the mantle in a glass case, and everybody that comes in their home they tell about it, and and uh, and they're so proud of this of this object. Well, but this is the thing about antiques Rocho, What you see is. A person's joy over the item is tied to its monetary value. I know sometimes they say, well, it doesn't really matter that it's not worth anything. It's worth something to me. And then they just go off and cry and off camera. But, but the, the more it's worth, the happier they are. And I bet the, if the people that brought the porcelain bedpan or whatever, the little bowl or whatever, and they found out the good news. I bet if they had a bad morning, if they had trouble finding a parking spot at that busy convention center, if they spilled their coffee on themselves on the, on the way there, broke a nail or tripped and stubbed a toe or something like that, after the, they have this joy of this newly discovered treasure, 
I don't think that they care about those little frustrations much anymore. Well, that's a silly illustration, I, I realize, but let's go from the ridiculous to the sublime. Our joy as Christians is tied to the value of the treasure that we possess. It's not a treasure we earn. It's not a treasure we purchase. It's not something that we inherited from our relatives. No, it's something we received as a gift. And, and its value and its worth is far greater than anything else we could possibly possess. And the more we understand the infinite worth of, and the value of this treasure, the more joy we will have. There's that correlation, just like on the Antiques Roadshow, between the, the value, the monetary value, and the joy. That So it is for us in this treasure. This intense, overflowing, shared, enduring, resilient, Godward joy. It correlates to the value of this possession. And our joy in this treasure we possess, it, it makes the real troubles and real difficulties, not to minimize those things, but it, it makes those pains and hardships we face in this life seem not so life-dominating. We begin to see our sufferings and even persecutions and threats and, and sicknesses and diseases and, and, and disasters and losses. We begin to see those things as Paul saw them. Is light and momentary afflictions compared to the eternal weight of glory that's beyond all comparison that, 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 that we possess and that we're being prepared for. So we, we begin to see different perspective. And so this is Peter's point in this first chapter of his first letter. First Peter that we've been in for a few weeks now. The, the treasure of salvation we possess is, is of such incredible unbelievable, infinite worth that we can joyfully endure present suffering uh, in light of future glory. That's his point here. And so here's the flow of thought just to kind of catch us up where we're at in this first chapter of First Peter. And so verses 1 and 2, right at the beginning, he, he reminds these suffering Christians who they really are. Yes, they're alienated, they're scattered, they're, they're facing persecution, and that's only going to get worse. But listen, what he starts right out of the gate, your identity is in Christ, not your circumstances. That's how it begins. We, we get, brothers and sisters, we get our, our identity vertically. It's, it's in Christ and, and, and the salvation that we have at God, by God's doing. And that doesn't change no matter how your circumstances ebb and flow. There's this constant, uh, uh, constant state of our identity in Jesus Christ. And it's fixed vertically. So that's true for us. And then in verses 3 to 5, he points his readers to the, to the greatness and the, and the absolute certainty of their future inheritance in Christ. They, they've been born again to a living hope by God's mercy to this, to this uh, inheritance that's imperishable and undefiled and unfading and kept in glory for them. And, and they're protected and preserved by the power of God until they possess that inheritance. So he, 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 he lets them know that. And then in verses 6 to 9, he goes on and he says, this great salvation, this certainty of your inheritance, it produces in us then this inexpressible joy even in the midst of present suffering and when we endure those things. And, and then now we get to verses 10 to 12 and then we're going to see, you'll see in verse 13, just look down to verse 13, therefore. So again, he's writing to suffering Christians and he's he's. And, and you think, what do, what, do you, what do you say to people who are suffering? Well, you give them comfort. 
And he does. And there's wonderful comfort in this first chapter. Then he gets to therefore and he tells them some things they need to do. And he calls them to this radical living. And so that's true for us too. When as we help one another, we comfort one another, but we also, the worst thing that a sufferer can do is find themselves completely inactive and just sit out and veg and watch, you know, binge watch Netflix. That's not helpful. You know, God calls us to action and to gird up our minds, the loins of our minds, and that's what he does in verse 13. So he calls us to action, but this, this last thing he says before he, he communicates his radical change in behavior, he says he shows us this incredible privilege we have of salvation. And again, we've seen it already, but it's rooted here in verses 10 to 12 in this past prophetic revelation. And so it's so great, it's so unsearchable that even the prophets and the angels, they, they, long, they, they long to fully grasp it, but they couldn't. And so if we'll focus on this the unbelievable greatness of our salvation in Christ, we can, enjoy, we can joyfully endure present trials. That's the point. And I don't say that lightly, brothers and sisters. I don't mean to be trite in saying that. I know what some of you are walking through right now, and, 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 and if you're not right now, you will be at some point. But listen, you can, you can walk through a season of trouble and have the grief that goes with it, and yet that grief be infused with joy and hope. And this is what Peter is saying to these believers. This passage is about the privilege that we have as Christians. I know that's that word privilege, it gets a lot of press these days, and most of it, when you hear it, it has very negative connotations. But listen, our privilege, when I use that word here, it's not, it's not something we possess because of some innate goodness. It's not something we worked hard to attain or earn for ourselves some privileged status. It's not natural privilege. It's not based on our ethnicity. It's not based on our, uh, where we happen to be born. That's not the way I'm using it here. It's privilege that we have because of God's free and sovereign grace. And this privilege isn't something that should make us proud or self-righteous or self-serving. It should make us humble and self-sacrificing. And that's what Peter's going to show in starting in verse 13 how this changes us. But Jesus talked about this privilege in Matthew thirteen sixteen and 17. Just listen. He said, Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. He's saying, all these prophets and righteous people of old, they wanted to see what you get to see. I'm, I'm in front of you, the promised one, the Messiah is standing before you. You're hearing his voice, you're seeing his face and here, and you're privileged to, to see that. And that Peter wants us to, in a, in a different and even greater way, to see our privilege and to feel more dogged gratitude and, and resilient wonder and enduring uh, joy over our salvation. And so just look at the text with me, and you can see this, this privilege in, in these verses, in verse three verses here. Verse 10, the prophets prophesied about the salvation, what? And the grace that was to be yours. And he goes on in verse 12 and elaborates on this. They were not serving themselves, but you. This, this privilege. Verse 12, again, the Spirit made sure these things were announced to you through those who preached the gospel to you. And then in the end of verse 12, the angels are just breaking their necks trying to 
bend over and stoop down and to, and to, to get a front row seat on the salvation that we, we're privileged to experience. And so that we see this in this. So our salvation is this precious, rare, precious jewel of infinite worth. And we see several facets of it here in, this, in, in these three verses. And we're going to note five. First aspect about this, of, of, about this privilege that we possess. First, it's a grace-infused privilege. It's a grace-infused privilege. Look at verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. So salvation, according to Peter, is taking possession of grace. And, and he goes on in verse 13, and he'll use grace again, and he's referring to that full expression of salvation that, that, that won't, we won't completely understand until Christ returns. But again, he's connecting these two. Grace is an important word in First and Second Peter. It's used ten times in First Peter, and we've seen it already in this chapter. Grace is that free, unmerited, unearned favor of God. And, and so to, to, to comprehend the privilege we have as Christians, we have to understand the grace we've received. And then really to, 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 to fully appreciate the, the fullness of God's grace that we've received, we have to grasp how undeserving we are. So we've got to back up. We need to, we need to understand cognitively, cognitively, and we need to, honestly, we need to feel emotionally how unworthy we are in our, on our own. And how deserving we are of nothing but the wrath and judgment of God. We deserve nothing good from God. Only His condemnation. And so when we talk about grace, don't, don't think of grace as kind of being on the, the icing on the cake of salvation. Like, like it's, it's, it's not like we earn most of our salvation by our good deeds and by our you know, religious devotion and by our morality and... And yet God supplied that last little bit we needed uh, and, and the little bit we lacked by His grace. And so grace kind of just was a little nudge we got to push us over the top of salvation. That's not it at all. No, it, it, salvation is grace through and through. It's completely infused with grace. The privilege that we have is not mostly us and then a little bit of grace. No, it is grace from beginning to end. It is nothing we deserve, nothing we've earned, nothing we have attained. It is God's free, unmerited, unearned favor and nothing less. And that's wonderful news for everybody here today. Because we're, because we're saved by grace, not merit, that means that there is hope for every single sinner. No matter, no matter how great your sin is, there is hope for you because... This is the only way any of us are saved. It's grace. It's completely unearned. You may have walked into this room under, uh, un- under God's just condemnation because of your sin, but you can leave this room redeemed by God. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Because of what? Because of His grace. So it's grace-infused privilege. Second, His Christ-initiated privilege. This is great. Verse 10, let's start again. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Now, we're going to come back to the prophets in just a moment, but I I just want you to see something from verse 11, and this is incredible. 
That Peter's saying that the prophets, the Isaiah and Jonah and Malachi and Daniel, I'm intentionally using prophet's name, on which we have boys named after these guys. And sorry if I missed any Habakkuk or somebody out there. But, um, but, but as these prophets, as they spoke with accuracy and with specificity about how God would provide the salvation that we so desperately needed, as, as they did that, those prophets were guided by none other than Christ himself. So it was the Spirit of Christ who was directing these prophets to speak about himself a hundred, hundreds of years before his incarnation. And so you see that Spirit of Christ. It, it could mean the pre-incarnate Christ, or it could mean the Holy Spirit. I don't think those are so mutually exclusive in, in the sense of this. They are distinct. The second and third person of the Trinity, they're one, but they're also distinct from one another. This is our Trinitarian theology. We have one God... Or monotheists, but he exists eternally in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So I think Peter's talking about Christ himself through the Holy Spirit, by the Spirit, is initiating these prophecies about his saving work. And so Christ through the Spirit predicted the sufferings and the glories of Christ. Look at it again, verse 11. The prophets were inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He, not they, but He predicted the sufferings of Christ in subsequent glories. Now, why do I make such a big deal about this? Why is this so wonderful? Why am I so excited about this? Well, this is what it means. It, doesn't, it means that Jesus didn't do what He did in order to fulfill prophecy. He, no, instead, the prophets prophesied what they did because the Christ who would do it told them what he was going to do. Now, that's a mouthful. Listen, let me just give you an illustration. It wasn't that Jesus was given all of these homework assignments by the prophets. And there are some 300 prophecies that are very specific in, and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So it's not, it's not that Jesus had 300 homework assignments. Imagine that assignment sheet, uh, students. And so he's got all year to, to, to work this out, or he's got years to, to accomplish it. He's got 300 assignments. They've got, to be, they've got to be completed by a given deadline. And so Jesus is you know, making sure he keeps up with all of his work and does what he needs to do and gets everything done. And, and is, this what, is this what they wanted from me? Okay, so just you know, dutifully going down his assignment sheet. That is not it at all. No, it's Jesus who's in charge of the whole process. These are assignments that he created for himself, and, and, and he's the one who initiates it all. Everything the prophets spoke, they spoke because the Spirit of Christ told them. He predicted these things about what he was going to do. And so you think about it, the Almighty Son of God, King of kings, Lord of lords, was speaking to these men about the things he would suffer for you and me hundreds of years before they happened. That's That's incredible. What a privilege we have. Tell them that I'm going to be born of a virgin. He says to Isaiah. Say that I'll be born in Bethlehem, Micah. Say that my ministry will begin in Galilee. Tell them I'll teach in parables. Say that I'll enter Jerusalem on a donkey. Say that I'll be betrayed by a friend. Tell them I'll be sold for 30 pieces of silver. Say that I'll be wounded and bruised. That my hands and feet will be pierced. Say that my garments will be torn apart and lots will be cast for them. Tell them my side will be pierced, but my bones won't be broken. Say that I'll be buried in a rich man's tomb. Say that I'll raise from the dead. 
300 of these Christ-initiated, Christ-made predictions about himself. He's in charge of the whole process. All of those things would be done, not because, again, not because the prophets predicted them, but because Christ had decided that this is what he would do for you and me. That's amazing. What a privilege we have. Your salvation doesn't just go back to the moment of your conversion, brothers and sisters. It doesn't just go back to the cross. It doesn't just go back to the prophecies about what Jesus would suffer for you. It's just, it's, it's, it goes back to the plan of a sovereign and eternal God who decided to deal with this horrible dilemma of sin and set his love upon you before the foundation of the world. And he would not be defeated. That's amazing. That's what Peter is saying to these, these suffering Christians is understand the privilege you have. Yes, I know you're suffering. I know you're alienated. I know you're scattered. I know you're alone in the world. I know your neighbors and your family members are, are, your family members are disowning you. Your neighbors hate you. But you have this privileged position. Christ initiated the saving work long before you were born. It didn't begin with the prophets. It began with Him saying these things that He would accomplish for you. That's a privilege. Third, it's a prophet-served privilege. Now we're going to speak about these prophets. So we're backing up again. I'm sorry, we're getting a running start at each of these little facets of this jewel. Verse 10 again. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, they searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glory. So, let's note a few things about the, these prophets from the Old Testament. The first thing that's clear in this text, I mean, these are from the passage here. They did not understand much of what they predicted. They didn't understand much of what they predicted. They were intensely interested in understanding and in searching out what the Spirit of Christ told them. And, and so they searched and they inquired carefully, but there was a lot that they didn't understand. So the Spirit of Christ says to Isaiah, you know, a virgin's going to conceive and give birth to a son. And Isaiah says, what does that mean? And the Lord tells him, don't, don't worry about it. You wouldn't, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't believe me if I told you right now. And, and so with the other prophets, Haggai and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and on and on and Amos. And so you imagine, imagine 25 men trying to put together a thousand piece jigsaw puzzle. None of them have all the pieces. None of them have the picture on the front of the box. And they're supposed to make this fit together. They, they can get a little, they can see some color and they can see some shape. But if you got all the sky pieces, I'm sorry, you just don't see much. You just, you don't, your, your part is, is not, not so obvious. And so, but add to that, these men didn't work together on it. They live hundreds of years apart in different locations. And that's what it's like being an Old Testament prophet. And so Ezekiel had a few pieces, pieces, and Obadiah had a few pieces, and Isaiah, he had, he had several pieces, and maybe a section of the puzzle, and, but none of them had all of them. And, and, and so here they are, though. They're trying, they're searching, they're inquiring, they're asking the Spirit of Christ who's revealing these things to, to un- help them understand. Someone's described the prophets, as, it's like they're, they're shooting these arrows of truth up in the air. 
And, and so Isaiah shot his arrows of truth, and Daniel shot his arrows of truth, and Moses shot his arrows of truth, and on and on, all these prophets. And, and so they pull back the prophetic bowstring and, and let this arrow of truth fly, <coughs> and some of them, many of these arrows, and, and they see that arrow disappear over the horizon, and they have no idea exactly where and when it's going to land. And, and, and yet they're confident it will. And so together, these 300 arrows of truth fly over a different over different times and from different places. They're shot up in the air, different men, and over a 1,500-year period, and, and they can't see where they land. And yet we know, what we see, is that they, they, they had no, what we know what they had no idea of, and that's that every single one of those arrows would land on Christ and would come to him. So they, so they, they didn't understand everything they said. Second, second, and we've said this somewhat already, they labored to understand what they were prophesying, wasn't that they were passive or, or anything like that. No, the prophets searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what the person or ti- what person or time the Spirit of Christ was indicating. And so, so the idea is that they're studying their own prophecies and they're trying to understand the times and the circumstances when they'll be fulfilled. And they're they're asking the Lord's help and they they want to know when and how. You know, as you can imagine, obviously the later prophets benefited from. Uh, all of the earlier prophets, and so they had more revelation, greater revelation, but they still didn't have it all. They didn't, didn't see how it fit together. But they're, they're laboring to understand. Third, they focused on the sufferings and glories of Jesus Christ. Because that's why. Why did they focus on that? Because that's what Christ was focused on. And the Spirit of Christ is the one who predicted these things through them. And so they spoke of, they spoke prophecies in both of these categories. Even sometimes the same prophets. You have Isaiah who's speaking of Christ's sufferings in Isaiah 53 so, so articulately. And, and then he speaks of his coming glory in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. And so this is, this is, this is, these are the two broad categories. And so that, that order is crucial. Suffering, then glory. This is, Jesus makes this very clear. He, remember when he was speaking to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, that first Easter Sunday morning, he's walking along and he's got, join him. And what does he say to them? Oh, foolish ones and slow to heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the, that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? What Jesus is saying, this is what the prophets have been saying. The Messiah, the Christ, he would suffer and he would be glorified. This was their focus. And so as these prophets looked into the future, they knew God was up to something. They didn't know exactly what he was up to. They didn't know all that he was up to. But they knew it involved both the suffering and the glories of the Messiah. And then fourth, they were not self-serving, but they served us. Peter says this amazing little statement at the beginning of verse 12. Thank you, Pat. You, Patrick noted this. It was revealed to them that they were not they were serving not themselves, but you. It was revealed to them. Now, I, I don't know how. I don't the Spirit of Christ say to Isaiah, Isaiah, be patient. You, you're, you're, you're not serving yourself, you're not even serving your own generation exclusively. You are serving them, but not exclusively. You're, you're serving saints hundreds of years from now. And and your, your, your prophecy of me is the proof that I am who I say I am. And so your work, Isaiah, it's not in vain. You're not serving yourself. You're serving, serving us. Those who Peter's readers. So the work of the prophets wasn't for them. It was for us so that our faith could have rich soil in which to grow. So the question, the question often arises when we suffer, particularly 
times of persecution and the saints are suffering direct threats. And what if, what if this Christianity really isn't true? I mean, I think if some of you are honest, you've struggled with these questions in times of suffering in particular. What if we believed in vain? What if I'm trusting in a myth? What if I'm suffering for nothing? How does Peter encourage these saints? He says, your, your salvation, it's rooted in these prophecies made hundreds of years before Christ ever came. It's true. You're privileged to be living in and experiencing what the prophets spoke of and what they longed to see and be part of and understand. And you're living it. That's great. This Peter saying the story of Jesus, it doesn't rest on your changing emotional state, how you feel about God in light of your circumstances. That's not what your faith rests on. Your Christianity is, is rooted in written down facts of history. And scripture is a word-based faith. The predictions of the prophets, they've all come true in the person of Jesus Christ. And so we have, this, we have this privilege, our salvation, and therefore our joy is, is rooted in the unchanging Word of God. We are privileged, privileged to possess this. I don't think we realize what a, what a privilege it is to have the Scriptures in front of us and completed. God's perfect Word and revelation of Himself. And Peter's going to make more of this. And in 2 Peter 1.9, he says, We have the prophetic Word made more sure. We are in a better position than anybody who's gone before us. We have his word. And, and, and if you could just peek ahead in First Peter, just we're going to be here in a couple of weeks at the end of the chapter. Look down at verse 23. You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So take heart, brothers and sisters. What a privilege you have. Salvation is, is, is you, you can have joy in the times of suffering as you remember that your salvation is resting on the solid bedrock of the word of God that does not change. Fourth, it's a spirit-applied privilege. Like halfway through, partway through verse 12. These, these things that have been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And so the gospel has been announced and preached to us by the Holy Spirit. I don't mean necessarily by the direct you know, operation of the Holy Spirit and you're just speaking right to us, but it's through human instruments. But it's the Spirit who's working. So, and, and, and when you see the word preach, don't think, you know, pulpit and sermon notes and, and uh, fill-in-the-blank outlines, if you remember what those things are when we had those. Uh, this, this is the word for preaching that's in the most general sense. It's honestly, it's, a, it's where we get our word evangelism. That's the that's from the Greek word, euangelion, or euangelizo. And so, so, it's proclaiming the good news. Here's what Peter's saying. We're, we're privileged because part of the work of salvation that God has done and is doing is that by His Spirit, He's raised up people who've brought the message of salvation to us. He's not passive. He's not saying, you know, take it or leave it. It's there. If you're interested, you can find it. No, he 
by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven on mission to bring messengers to you. That's how you believe, brothers and sisters. To Peter's first readers, they're, again, they're alienated, they're scattered, they're, they're dispersed, they're persecuted, they're suffering. But he's saying, remember, God's Spirit worked to bring messengers of the gospel to you so that you could hear and believe. What a privilege. Can you think in your own life of the person it was for you or the people it was? You think of names and faces of people who, who the Holy Spirit used to bring into your life and to bring the message of salvation at some time in your life. Maybe your parents or a friend, a Sunday school teacher, a pastor, a co-worker, a neighbor, a classmate, a grandparent, a just complete stranger. Maybe it was a, someone you saw on television or on the internet, like Billy Graham, I mean, for, for some of you. Or maybe it was just a track somebody wrote. It wasn't, a, but somebody wrote that. What, what, what an amazing thing, though. <laughs> this wasn't chance. These weren't random encounters. Paul tells us, or Peter tells us, this was the Holy Spirit who worked to bring this message so that it was announced to you. So I, I just thought, of, I'm going to try this. I wanna, on the count of three, I, I just want us to say out loud at least one of the names of the people. So don't string 20 names or you'll just keep talking by yourself. It's going to sound like we're speaking in tongues. But, um, but I, 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 I just want, want you to call out loudly in, in unison one of the names of the people that God used by the Holy Spirit to announce to you this message of salvation. So on the count of three, don't be ashamed. Say it out. One, two, three. Scott Brown. That's, that sounds muddled, but that's beautiful. Because of what it represents. It's, it's, it's a great thing. And, and it's wonderful. And, and again, the person that you mentioned and the people that we mentioned, they're not just people that we, we, we look at that and we say, well, man, they must have really been filled with evangelistic zeal. They may have been. But you know what? The really, what do we attribute it to? It was God's Spirit completing the process, announcing to you through them I'm not saying they were completely passive, but announcing to you, it was the Spirit announcing to you through them the gospel, bringing the gospel of God's grace to you. This is what Peter says to his readers. These things are to you. And his Spirit was doing something else too. He was, he was opening your heart to it. Because your heart was dead to the truth and needed to have life breathed into it. And so the Holy Spirit was working in and through them and He was working in you and so that at a certain point you would believe. Wow. And this is, this is great. Who would conceive of a plan like that? All because before you were born, before God ever created the world, He set His love upon you and upon me. And then there's this fascinating little addendum, verse 12. Into verse 12. These are things into which angels long to look. <laughs> They're that longing. It's, it's a word for jealousy. It's covetousness. I don't mean it's sinful longing, but it's that, it's that intense longing. They, so it's a fifth thing we'd say. It's an angel-observed privilege. They're, they long to look. The, the, the idea is to stoop down to see. This is Peter and, and John when they you know stoop down to look inside of the empty tomb and to gaze intently to see what... What, how they can make sense of that. And so angels are bending down from heaven to marvel at the unfolding plan of salvation. 
So this is the opposite of the way we think. If I, if I told you I had this secret window, that would, this little portal that would allow you to see what's going on in the angelic, angelic realm, I mean, you would crowd around and you'd pay big money to just get a glimpse of that. But, but God says, that's not the important thing. What matters is not being able to see what's going on in the angelic realm. What he's saying, it's, it's the opposite. It's, it's the angels are crowding around this little window, this little portal, to, 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 to get a glimpse of what God is doing and bringing redemption. What he's accomplishing. And so, clearly, angels know a lot about God. They're not dumb beings. It's not like, oh, I don't know what's happening. That's not that. They, they stand in God's holy presence. They're sent out to do God's will. They, they have tremendous God-given authority and, and, and power. They're impressive beings. Reflecting God's glory. But, they, but they're outsiders when it comes to knowing and experiencing God's greatest work. Redemption. Salvation. There are no saved angels. We alone, of all creatures in the universe, are the ones who can experience the wonders of God's salvation, saving grace. So there's this gallery of angelic beings who are watching with amazement and, 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 and uh, the transforming power of redemption. And so they're watching those connections made. They're, they're watching the Spirit work through the Word, even right now. They're watching some people begin to understand their deep need for the Savior. They're watching people grasp the glory of the sufferings of Christ. They're watching people grab hold of God's grace by faith. They're watching the heart being transformed. They're watching sanctification take place. They're just in awe. Angels just peering over, looking over the wall of redemption just to see this amazing thing that's happening. Jesus said that the angels rejoice over one sinner who repents. So do you hear their applause? <laughs> and, the, and the gasps and the sighs and the cheers. The angels are just being amazed at God's work of grace and redemption. Are you amazed? Are you a celebrant of God's grace? If the angels get excited about salvation, if the prophets long to see it and intensely yearn to see that day, how excited is your heart for what God has done in saving you? The angels love to look at, at the work of God in saving sinners like us. How much more should we who are recipients of that salvation, not onlookers of it, but recipients of it, how much should we love to look into it and be thankful and say with Peter, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, maybe you feel like you're in line at religious roadshow this morning. <laughs> and you're wondering what you walked in here carrying. This possession that you have is really something of great value. Or if it's worthless. Listen, if you walked in here clinging to, hoping in, your good works, your religious merit, your morality, your religious performance, some spiritual experience that you had, your parents' belief system. If that's what you're clinging to, if that's what you're hoping will be assessed to be of great value, then you are going to be sorely disappointed. Uh, those things are not of eternal value. But if you came in, and if you are here presently holding Christ and the salvation of 
that he gives by his grace through faith, then you possess something of infinite value for eternity. And you should rejoice. That should be our response. But listen, no matter what you came in here with, you can leave with that treasure of salvation in Christ that's of infinite value. And so I I plead with you, if you've not trusted in Christ, trust in Him today. Call upon Him. Confess, I'm a sinner. Lord, I've depended upon being good, depending on being better than people. I've tried to go to church. I've tried to be a good person. I realize now that doesn't work. That's not a, that, there's no value in that before you. I need Christ. I need the salvation that He has secured and He secured through His death and through His resurrection and that He gives freely to those who will receive it. I don't want to receive this gift today and I plead with you, if you've, if you've not trusted in Him, trust in Him today. You can pray right now and call upon Him and say those things to Him now. If you want to talk with one of us, if you've got questions, please find somebody around you, talk to me. We'd be glad to talk with you. But this is the thing that we see in this passage and throughout this chapter, is that what is God's greatest, what is God's answer for our greatest problem, sin? We might think it would be uh, a set of instructions or a set of techniques or a new moral code or a philosophy or a theology. But what is it? The solution God has, it's himself. It's himself. What God gave us was himself. Jesus came. He left the glories of eternity. The almighty God, the the son of God, the sovereign creator, he willingly subjected himself to all the hardships of this life and a fallen world, hunger and temptation and and, uh, abandonment and rejection and justice, torture and on and on and on. And not only subject himself to those things, but he's willing to, he was willing to die in order for the wrath of God to be satisfied that we deserved and and so that we could be accepted as children of God. So this table is set before us to help us remember this. This is what, this was his solution. This is the privilege that we own. It's that God came. Christ came. God himself paying for our sins. And so this table is set before us. The bread and the cup. These are not just religious um, uh, uh, duties or, or rituals. No, these are, these are tangible reminders of the greatness of the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. And so we're going to come and eat and drink together. Uh, let me pray and then the team will come up and we will sing uh, and, then, and, go, and then eat and drink together. Father, we thank you for the salvation that we have through Jesus Christ. Help us day to day Live with this gratitude and thankfulness that, in, that is an enduring gratitude no matter what we're going, what, what's happening around us and in our lives, that we can be those people who have joy in the midst of grief because our salvation is secure in Christ. And so help us as we sing the fact that you have paid it all. There is no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's not a little bit left to be that we've got to work out on our own, a few more licks we've got to take. No, it's been paid in full by Christ. And help us to sing with joy in our hearts and to eat and drink and celebrate together, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.